Go down any supermarket aisle and you'll find an incredible selection of milk. You can get whole milk, buttermilk, 2% milk. Just like the traditional taxi system revolted against ride sharing, so too does the education establishment feel threatened by the rise of school choice. Low-fat milk or skim milk, organic milk, and milk with extra vitamin D. Why do we not allow parents to exercise that same right to choice in the education of their child? There's flavored milk, chocolate, strawberry, or vanilla. They even make milk for people who can't drink milk. So today we're joined by Jennifer Berkshire, a journalist and podcaster who covers education, policy, and politics. Along with Jack Schneider, she co-authored A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door back in 2020. And her podcast alongside Schneider, Have You Heard, has helped many a parent like me navigate the recent acrimony and um, decline, honestly, of public education in a post-COVID world. You can follow her on Twitter at B is for Berkshire, and you can subscribe on you can subscribe to the uh, Patreon for Have You Heard on Patreon.com. Have You Heard podcast? Jennifer, welcome to Why Are We Like This. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I would say that it's good to have someone from a, a, another podcast with a similarly interrogative title structure. We, we have to stick together. We're, we're we're out here asking questions, and we have to you know be asking the questions together. <laughs> Uh, I want to I want to get started by kind of level setting a little bit on some vocabulary for our listeners. Everyone, I think, has heard about school choice. Right. But for a lot of our listeners, their grasp of this concept is maybe a little antiquated or frozen in amber from back when we were kids. I think that people think of like, you know, people either parents either send their kids to public school or you cut a check to the archdiocese. And that's kind of the understanding. Right. That's what we come from that, that era. But it's far more complex these days. Uh, yes, um, maybe they broadly understand that there are these things called charter schools or magnet schools, but not really sure what they are and how to disambiguate them in their heads. How do you broadly explain this modern landscape to people who are maybe less initiated, maybe don't have children who are school-aged? Well, as it happens, I am teaching a class this year at Yale on the politics of public education. And just last night, we were discussing the sort of, you know, the forever battle between public versus private. And I had them, uh, we made three columns on the chalkboard, because they're still an old-fashioned chalkboard, one public, one private and one gray area. And then we went around the room and students described where they had gone to school. And what was so interesting was that there were still a fair number of kids who went to their assigned district school. There were also a handful of students who went to what, you know, what you were jokingly describing as you know, writing a check to the archdiocese. They went to, to private schools that their parents paid for. But then there were all these gray area schools sort of in the middle you know there were lots of magnet programs and there was a, a stem charter school there were programs that you had to apply to get into and and lotteries and so they because i think they started out feeling like this this was a very abstract difference and what they were able to see was that that you know for various reasons market principles had been applied to the concept of education to try to appeal to different kinds of parents and and you know what you know there was a theory of change that if you offered people more choices it would force the the existing public school structure to improve and so in many ways that's all it is just think of those those columns and what in the past was a very clear divide is now increasingly murky especially in a state like Florida, where you have more and more 
public money going to fund private options. Yeah, and that kind of gets at the core tension around your beat, right? The private education versus the public education and all of these uh, striations of what it is. In A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, you described education options in the context of the rhetoric like a choice, marketplace, you know, things that we're used to um, as Americans being the way that we're used to being marketed to. Um, Schemes that emerge as policy pipe dreams and are later repackaged without political ideology. Can you talk us through the broad strokes of the the, the public private private education debate, like where the 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 various advocates um, place merit, and and why privatization has gotten so much more purchase recently, especially in the last few years since COVID, frankly. Yeah. So there. Um, so this is as as you kind of imply. This is this is a really old debate. It goes back decades and decades. And people may be familiar with the name of the economist, the famous libertarian economist Milton Friedman. He was really the the one who came up with this idea for school vouchers, where parents would get a certain amount of public funding, and then they could do with it what they what they wanted. And and so this idea kind of stays on the shelf more or less for a long time. It's very controversial. Anytime vouchers are put up for a vote public votes them down overwhelmingly people are not comfortable with the idea of funding public uh, uh using public dollars to fund religious schools and they're also really uncomfortable with the idea that that we would pay for schools that are allowed to discriminate against kids as part of their mission and we'll talk about that a little more late uh later but then what you see happening over time is just as we started out discussing the school landscape gets more and more complicated. And we start to think of education less as a public good, something that's gonna benefit the entire community, something that's gonna benefit all of us, even if we don't have kids in the schools. And instead, we really start thinking of it as a private good that is going to assist in our own advancement. So I'm, I'm gonna pour as many resources as I possibly can into the education of my child in hopes that she will attend an elite university and and soar to the highest possible level. And as for all those other kids, well, that's somebody else's problem. And so when we describe in the book how the, you know, like this over time really becomes the water that we swim in, to use a nice kind of Florida metaphor, that's what we're talking about that the in some ways what made the idea of school privatization more palatable was that we started to think of education as a private good as a country and i i don't know if we can move forward without addressing probably the stickiest question and i've heard you and jack um address this in the most nuanced and spent hundreds of hours of times addressing uh, of, of time addressing this uh this very sticky question but is there any widely accepted pedagogical evidence that charter schools or that model are inherently superior to the public school model? And I, I, I realize what a gross oversimplification that is of that question, but I think that that's probably the question that's at the forefront of a lot of those parents you alluded to who are like, well, I got to do what's right for my kid. I have to make this individuated decision and this is better than that. So, and we should back up a little bit and just and just define what a charter school is. So this is, you know, a relatively new concept in American education. So it comes about in the 90s really as an alternative 
to the sorts of religious, private religious school voucher programs that, that we were talking about. And it's really a bipartisan effort. And the idea is that you'll, it'll still be a, a public school in the sense that it's publicly funded um, and there'll be some measure of democratic oversight, but it, they'll, it, they'll really, they'll, you know, there'll be much more of a kind of market understanding of how it operates. So, so, you know, parents, uh, you know, it has, they have to basically compete for parents and good charters can expand, bad charters will shut down. And I think what's interesting about your question that was that if you asked me this question, say 10 years ago, um, I would really have been, you know, there at, at that point during the height of the Obama era, there was really a concerted effort to make the case that, that charters were more effective. And that, that, you know, like we tried them and they worked and we should have as many of them as possible. But what's so interesting about the school choice debate right now is that the conservatives have largely moved on from charter schools and are instead going all in for private school vouchers and other kinds of private choice yeah. um, where you give the money to parents and they can do with it whatever they want. And so you will see more and more conservatives acknowledging that actually charters have not been the the panacea for improving educational outcomes that we have seen. And to the extent that they have been really successful, they have there is a downside to them, right? That they uh, they tend to be these are urban charter schools that use very strict discipline and a, a real intense focus on on testing. And, and so there's been a kind of been some backlash against what they have to do to produce the level of achievement that they've gotten. So I would say that that overall right now, um, you know, you can certainly point to some success stories, but the kind of the bipartisan consensus that this was the way to go, this was going to be the future of public education in the U.S. has completely fallen apart. And that that decline, it seems like it was... It, it, Maybe just from the perspective of a parent whose kid happened to be starting school at this time, but it seems like the opening was created during maybe not maybe there's no causal relationship. I don't know. I'll ask you, but COVID really seems to have created an opening for this this discourse to push further because yeah, I do remember that period that you're talking about, and it did seem like everybody was in agreement that hey, there's some money to be made, and we can also maybe do better school. A better schooling, a better school system, and yet yeah, it's pushed further to the to the private privatization side. What's your take on that? I think you're absolutely right. I think that that the the groups and the deep pocketed donors that are the most excited about school privatization really saw the pandemic as a once in a lifetime opportunity. So, for example. In the weeks after schools shut down in the spring of Mar uh, spring of 2020, the Heritage Foundation, which is a very influential conservative think tank in Washington that was started in the 70s, they released this document that's meant to look like almost like an official White House document, and they've got they're laying out their recommended policy priorities. And it was fascinating for education. They basically just took every Republican wish list item off the shelf and, and threw it in there. And they said things, you know, like, like 
uh, states should immediately restructure their education funding so that money goes directly to the parents and they can use it for whatever they want. Now, I know because I co-host a podcast and have authored a book with an education historian that this dream dates back to the 80s, to Reagan's first term. And so what I think you're absolutely right that the door opened, but what the door opened to was a very old policy. And the the places where the states that have enacted new programs or sweeping expansions of old programs were ironically also the states that that really made a lot of the fact that they didn't close their schools. And so in some ways, the argument being made is really contradictory. Um, And you think about that, you know, coming from DeSantis, that on the one hand, he's saying we kept our schools open. And on the other hand, we have to give, you know, parents more choice because of the pandemic. And you know, what's funny is uh, here in Miami-Dade, I I think that there was almost from from the advocates and the people who are working hard on the public school side of this debate or just working hard in public schools, there was an anticipation of that. I remember the reluctance of our school administration to announce and waited until the very last second, until after Tom Hanks got COVID, to say, uh, like, okay, okay, fine, this is serious. Let's let's close down schools starting tomorrow. But you could, when you talk to the people who were, you know, kind of in the the communications or political aspect of of, of uh, or capacities of, of the of the um, district, they were like. That it wasn't a, a public health question. It was a what kind of blowback are we going to get question. And I, I think that you're 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 dead on about that. It was like they were expecting to have this um, global pandemic used as a cudgel to beat them over the head. Yeah, and think about the way that our our schools are organized. So we have this incredibly decentralized system, and so that means that you know that the decision making was pretty much left up to individual school districts. Sometimes it was a big district like where you are, but you know, most, most districts are not big. And so the, the standard media narrative is that schools closed because teachers unions didn't want schools to reopen or they demanded that they close. But all you have to do is talk to folks in states where unions are really weak or non-existent and the same fights were happening. It's just that the people were focusing their anger at a different group of people, yep. right? They were furious at the school board. They were furious at school administrators. And if the anger wasn't over closings, it was over the next set of COVID mitigations. It was over questions about vaccination or masking, um, you know, uh, hybrid education, etc. And so, really, like the same, the same fights that 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 we saw, you know, like um, happening in big cities were happening everywhere. Just people were mad at, at a different set of actors. Yeah, it's. I want to get to that, the villainization of certain groups and certain parties within this this larger topic. But before we close the door on, on, on this specific uh, section, I, I wanted to bring up a guest that you had recently on Have You Heard, a political science who was describing something that felt like a, um, like... It, it felt like during this period of time, there's been this ratcheting effect in the legislation or the policy that comes out where it gets further to the right or into the pro-privatization um, uh, uh, field, and but it's designed to not be able to ratchet backwards, right? It's, it's intentionally designed to only go one direction, um, designed to sort of like slam the door shut on a public governance model after it becomes clear that the private or the charter governance isn't working. 
it's like this gamble that you can't take back. And here in Florida, I want to talk with you also about Jefferson County here in Florida, which was our first county to become fully taken over by by charters and a lot of unseemly details and situations going on there. But it does seem like this is designed to be a cliff that you jump off of. And it's not like a, it's not like other policy where it wavers over the decades back and forth, depending on, you know, what the what the the, the political um you know the political tendencies of, of the populace are it's like it's meant to just go one direction you're absolutely right so if you look at a state like arizona where lawmaker lawmakers have just enacted what they call universal school choice um the it is so clearly intended to be something that that people can't walk back. And, and one of the reasons is that built into the law is that there's no accountability, right? Like there's no, um, think about all of the time and attention that's paid to standardized test scores in Florida, right? The like, and, and how much emphasis is put on that now create an entirely different program that allows parents to spend the money wherever they want to and basically say that how the schools do is nobody's business, that you're not going to collect any data um, so that journalists can't write about it, so that people can't do comparisons. Um, and at the same time, you're going to build into the law that the program gets bigger and bigger every year, right? Like that, I think that that's what, what you're talking about. And yeah. that's where you really feel that particularly in red states, that politicians have felt like, this is their opening to to enact programs they couldn't have gotten away with in the past, but also to kind of disregard the will of their own public, right? Yeah. Like there there was no there was no demand for this sweeping universal school choice program in Arizona. In fact, voters rejected by an overwhelming margin uh, a smaller. Uh, a, a smaller version of that program back in 2020. And so for lawmakers to come back and say, you know, we're going to ignore what you said to us two years ago, voters, and now here we've supersized it. Um, and, you know, we're we're not going to allow for, for public debate, et cetera. And so I, I feel like we're seeing versions of that play out, particularly in states that have, have trifecta Republican leadership. Yeah, and that's us too. I, 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 this might be three for three or four for four on episodes where I've brought up um, of this new podcast uh, of, that I brought up the not very well known Okoe massacre, and I bring it up because in 1920, um, it's it's the effects of like political violence, right, and, or or anti democratic violence when um, the result of the Okoe massacre, apart from scores of people who were killed and the political violence, the, the violence that was perpetrated against the black residents just because they were trying to vote in 1920. The net effect was 60 years of not a single black resident in Okoe. It worked like from that perspective of the, of the people perpetrating it, it worked. And this stuff is brutally effective. I, I think that's such a good point. And it really is, you know, like if you're somebody who's just watching this stuff from the outside and you're wondering, you know, like, what the hell are the Proud Boys doing at a Florida school board meeting? And it's exactly that. It's to inject the threat of menace into our day-to-day -day politics. Yep, exactly. I, I wanted to, like, shift a little bit and, and 
talk about the larger incentive structures and the larger the people who stand to gain honestly i had this client um in fast food in in quick service restaurants and this client was very well known for making pretty good burgers but not much else <laughs> all the rest of their food is terrible um and th- this huge corporation they looked at the, what they call the breakfast day part, right? And they viewed it very jealously. Their competitors like McDonald's and Starbucks own that space. My client understood breakfast to be this vast, untapped potential profit center. If we could just cut off a piece of, of breakfast, man, if we could own breakfast, imagine how good we would do. And I kind of think that that's the way that these private interests look at our school system budgets. Is is that an accurate way to understand um what animates the pro-privatization movement, like this fat hunk of money that we could get our hands on if only we can create these outcomes? Yes, I, I think that that is really a good way to think about it. And think about really like the whole history of Florida. Like what is the story of Florida um, other than really, you know, like an, an effort generation after generation to sort of turn on the spigot of wealth? So my, you know, my family actually moved from the uppermost reaches of Wisconsin in the 20s to Hollywood, Florida, because there was somebody there was like a Florida kind of like a, um, a roadshow guy who would go around to these freezing towns and say, there's a place for you. It's going to be great. Buy this lot. And so they show up. It's great. And then a hurricane wipes out the whole town. And I often think about that when I'm reading about school privatization in Florida, because basically what it is that, you know, like people have figured out a way to tap into taxpayer money and, and, you know, in a, in a way like the, it's a perpetual grift. And especially if you can start to remove that from, from any kind of, uh, you know, measurement um, you know, like you're going to define it now, a school works if a parent likes it, Yeah. right? Like think about the way that they, that we increasingly talk about the Florida's billion dollar school voucher program, that the success is not in things like graduation rates or, or test scores, which in my opinion, tend to be way overemphasized anyway, but it's just this question like, well, how does the parent feel about it? And as long as, as long as the, you know, as long as somebody's choosing that school, the school is a success and that that fountain of taxpayer money continues to flow. Yeah. And it doesn't like another area that they probably see as an even juicier vein is, um, you know, I think about big tech and their focus on things like um, ride share. Right. An area that has been uh, per- perennially uh dominated by union workers in a lot of ways, delivery, union workers, teaching union workers. If these interests, it feels like they look at teachers unions and see an opportunity to gut that entire, um, that entire structure and move on without it. And charter schools by and large, I don't think they do at all have any teachers unions or, or union protections for their, for their staff. Right. In, in some places, um, there are that, you know, the schools have ended up unionizing Chicago being one of them. There are some schools in Ohio, but overwhelmingly charter schools are non-union. And, um, and I think really like to see the future, you need to look at something called a micro school. And this is a I was going to ask you about this. I was going to ask you. It really took off (laughs) during the pandemic. And and there's a company in Arizona that is mostly driving this trend. And the idea is that anyone could run a school just like anyone can 
work for Uber if they have a car. And so you would apply to be a guide and you would be paid per head, you know, the number of kids who are in your, in your charge, but they're mostly learning online and the, you know, like you don't have to have any training or certification at all. They just, there's some basic safety questions like your gun needs to be locked away, et cetera. But the, the idea is that, you know, like we'll like all the things that are expensive about running a school, we're going to get rid of instead, it's going to be run out of your house. And think about it, like you're now totally alone. There's no teachers union. There's no ability for you to band together with your colleagues to demand better working conditions for yourselves, but also, you know, things like a stronger social safety net. Now yeah. you're just, you know, you're some guy who, who makes, you know, like, like really, um, I think it ends up being less than like $15 an hour running a micro school. That's one of the most dystopian things that I've, I mean, like it, 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 when we, when we try to, um, as a culture put, put, uh, portray things like that on screen, it's always in a dystopian context. It's always that so something went wrong in society and now we're stuck with this. And it's fascinating that it's being sold or explored as like a, a serious alternative. So I, I have the exact reaction that you do. I like when I hear this described, I, I think who could possibly think this is a good idea, but you know, who thinks it's a really good idea? School choice advocates in Florida. <laughs> they, so they like it for a couple of reasons. They, their sales pitch is that, that teaching in Florida public schools can be really dehumanizing because there's so much state oversight, right? Irony there. Yeah. Um, and, and also that it's a potential money maker for communities that have been locked out historically. Um, and so if you listen to somebody like Doug Tuthill, who runs Step Up for Students, which is a, a, a major Florida school choice group, it oversees the, the many of the voucher programs and is now like on a scale on par with the American Cancer Society. That's how, how, how many assets they have. Um, but he will often sort of extol like these are this is a business opportunity for African-American entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, and so the like that, you know, so I, I try to open my mind to to like see like what is it that is potentially appealing to people about this this vision. But that to me seems like a wildly hopeful uh, take on what really sounds dystopian and frankly, pretty grifty. Yeah, very grifty. And it's it's couched in a lot of the language that we are inured to, honestly. It's the, you know, we we especially and it was a lot of it was during the Obama years, the um this this advent of like uh of 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 entrepreneur class and like, you know, oh well, my you're 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 not working for uh you know, uh Grubhub, you're working for yourself, you know, and and and, and it's it's crazy the environment that was um that was that was created during the past decade to to make those kinds of pitches more more palatable and when you get down to it these folks are living on a lot of the people that work in that economy most of the people working in that economy are are, are working on subsistence wages and you're, so you're absolutely right and that's i mean it's such an apt comparison because the language is all the same 
And so just as an Uber driver is, you know, sort of a car-based entrepreneur, now we're talking about decentralizing school and letting edupreneurs call the shots. And of course, you know, the it's these it's companies and the the folks that are allied with them that stand to really cash in. But the the guide, the micro school guide is, you know, frankly, not going to fare particularly well. I wish I had like an infinity gemstone to turn time back and not have heard that phrase. I wish that I could never, (laughs) I wish I could go back to the me that didn't ever know that, that edupreneurship is a a word. Um, We've been focusing on the charter schools a lot because that's like, and the private schools now, because those are the growth sections of, of the industry here in Florida. But privatization can take a lot of different forms. Last week in um, sort of part one of this education topic, we had, briefly alluded to because we had a bunch of florida parents on the on on, on the call uh i ready but i wanted to follow up on that a little bit i ready is more because we really glossed over it i ready is more than just this computerized learning system and testing system it's a private enterprise that contracts with state and local education systems most recently they just won a big bid in kentucky um, they make millions of dollars it's supposed to gauge where kids are doing well or where they're doing poorly where they need help but it's private it's not transparent we don't know what they're using their data for. We don't know really much about the rules or the laws that govern it, especially if you're just a normal working parent. From a product perspective, it sucks. It's janky software. It's really bad. And it creates, I can speak from experience that it creates more stress, testing stress with the kids, um, often unnecessarily. I was wondering if you can talk about the proliferation of this type of services and software, all these private entities that kind of get their tendrils into the um the public school system and how they fit in with this larger debate. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And we keep hearkening back to the Obama era. And this was another place where you really saw this accelerate because, you know, they had this almost obsession with data. And so, you know, any anything that collected data or, you know, that measured progress over time was good. And in a lot of ways that, you know, that did open the door for just what you're talking about that you know there's there are millions of these of these products solutions you might say right and so uh one that i hear parents complaining about a lot is you know these solutions that are offered where you know they're supposed to start identifying kids career preferences as early as like third grade and then you know parents want to know what's happening with little Jennifer's data, where's all that going? Because of course, you know, as we know from our experiences watching the evolution of the internet, that, you know, nothing good is gonna happen with that data. And I actually think one of the interesting things that, that you can see happening in this strange moment where, you know, you have people shouting about parent rights and demanding quote unquote transparency in schools is that you do have parents who have widely different political views and opinions about things like issues like what should be taught in school, both identifying the the extreme influence of corporate vendors um, as a problem. And so I think that that could there could actually be some interesting pushback to what is just far, far too much influence in the schools and far too little ability of of kids to opt out and parents to push back. Yeah, this is a great segue, actually, into one of my favorite, uh, you know, you know how it is when you have this like uh, nagging thing in your mind that you can't put put words to and then you hear somebody else 
put uh, just the, the most perfect words to that feeling. And for me, for, for the, the, that has been the idea that you and your co-host um, Jack Schneider have, have talked about, which is soft, uh, soft pull, hard push. And from the perspective of a public school parent, I'll be transparent here because I think this is really important stuff to be transparent about. Um, my wife and I were professionals. We're well-established. We're a little older. Our household income is over 200K, which makes us in Miami, that makes us firmly middle-class. We are, I think we can, we're only a couple paychecks away from disaster at any given time. But, um, but four years into our kids' education, I can't help but feel this gravity. And you and Jack have called it the soft pull, hard push. It's the institution of education basically telling us, your kid doesn't belong here. You guys need to, you should be shopping. You should be looking around. Um, why, why, why do you have your kid in a community school? And it always happens in, um, in the context of us trying to better the school, going in advocacy with our advocacy hats on and saying like, hey, where's the money that was promised for the school? Where's the, um, you know, how, can we get uh, more shade or coverage in the playground? This and that, uh, we're not happy about this. We're not happy about that. And, you know, we're members of our PTA and we participate, but the response that we get is like a market-based one. It's like, hmm. So you guys, I, I feel like I like I I feel like somebody shopping on on for a car, and I'm looking at a Ford Escort, and the guy's telling me, no, 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 guy like you, you want an Expedition. That's what you want, <laughs> and that's ridiculous to me. C- can you talk about the ways that the private school sector kind of uses this class stratification with this like das of choice and? freedom and all this rhetoric that we've been talking about to, to get parents like me to leave and how that erodes what remains in the public schools. Well, I don't think I really need to add all that much because you described it. So my so wife says I'm I mean, mansplaining like could, too much on these episodes. I need to stop you, mansplaining. That's what she said. No, no, that was, that, that was really powerful because I think for people who don't have kids, that this is a reality that is hard for them to grasp. And really what it is, it's just, a, it's yet another reflection of how unequal we are as a society that, 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 you know, you're getting messages that are like, well, okay, so you, you believe in the public good, but you don't want your, your little darling to be held back. Do you, right. You know, you, you want to do everything you can to, to, to help. And then when you, when you do go back and you read about, the you know the kind of case for public schools as engines of civic you know empowerment and and you know like that's where you know they're the sort of bastions of our democracy it it feels like a, a relic from you know from an, an era we can't even imagine anymore right. and so the only language we have to talk about this stuff is the language of marketing and choice and i'm i'm remembering you know at at a republican national convention uh, back in the day, Jeb Bush, your former many-termed governor, gave this speech, and you know he was making a push for school choice. He was a very early evangelist for this, and he describes walking down the grocery store aisle, the milk aisle, and seeing all the different kinds of milk, regular milk, chocolate milk. They've even got milk that doesn't come from cows, you know. And why can't we? Why can't we have that same thing for schools? And, and that's what you're living through that right now. But the difference is that you, you're also getting these messages that if you buy the wrong kind of milk, you know, like 
things could go, the future won't work out for you. And the stakes right. are so high. You said you're two paychecks away from penury, right? Like that is, that is the story of our education system right there. Yeah. It, th that's a really great point because like, you're not buying milk, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, we have been able to do, my wife and I and our family have been able to enact or realize so much more by having a community and by having other parents and being like arm in arm with them versus when you turn yourself into a consumer, what uh, what you're doing, you're at, I mean, like people, this is old language, old socialist language, but like you atomize yourself, you make yourself this one army of one, you make yourself into an army of one. And guess what? Army of armies of one get defeated very easily. That, I mean, I think that that's such a great point. And you think about how awful the pandemic was for everyone and, and how, you know, how destabilizing it was. And a big part of that was because people are so isolated. And so what do they end up doing? Well, they're, you know, they're on the internet, right? Well, that, that worked out really well. And so as you, as you read about, about places that did better, it's for exactly the reason that you just described is because they, you know, you had groups of people who were able to kind of join forces. You know, there's this old world, uh, labor union world word, solidarity, and we don't use it enough. But, you know, right. the, the slogan was an injury to one is an injury to all. And though, you know, those are the places that made it through the pandemic best. And so to me, when I hear politicians arguing that we need a future that's more atomized, yeah. That I, I find that like that is a that's such a bleak vision. And I want to push back against that in any way that I can. When you think about Black Friday and you think about kicking in the doors at Best Buy and you're going in there to grab your flat screen and get the heck out before the lines are crazy, what you're not worried about you don't want to check in on Best Buy during the rest of the year. You don't want to make sure that their employees are well compensated. You don't want to make sure that you don't want to be a part of like the Best Buy Customer Association. You're not voting on their store management. You're just a consumer. You've been like, we strive as a country. And this is why I think I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on this. This is why I think that this particular type of private schooling as an industry has taken such a hold in the US. And it's because we really value retail relationships. We value consumer, you know, I keep using the word consumer, but like I pay you money directly and then I expect the service to come back to me. Um, I, I don't really know much about education abroad. Is this something that's like, that's very uniquely American? Like it, it just strikes me as, as very Black Friday-ish. Um, yes, it is very uniquely American. And I think what's interesting, you know, if you go back to the 80s and you read The Economist, who were really laying out this vision, right? That we, you know, our public schools were a failure because they were too democratic. And what we really needed was a system, you know, private schools were much more accountable because parents had quote unquote skin in the game. No. And if they didn't like what was happening to the school, they could leave. And that's what we needed across the board. That was going to be our future. And, you know, in the, in the late eighties, that, that still seemed like a really extreme vision. And the problem is that in the ensuing decades, that language of extreme consumerism that you were just describing is now it completely dominates everything. Um, you think about, you know, like the, like not only do we think of ourselves entirely as consumers, but we want to rate everything now too. 
right? Yeah. So like you're, you know, the, like Yelp, when, the Yelpification uh, of education. Yeah. The Yelpification or the smiley face thing. Oh God. So the, like, like what are the odds that a public good that requires this kind of broader vision of, of people working together, you know, what are the chances that that can survive this kind of onslaught of, of extreme consumerism? And I think what you're seeing in, in your world is just how, how tough that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, you know, the, um, the, if you are like the Miami-Dade water and sewer division and you go and look at your Yelp page and you're like, why, why is everybody rating us so lowly? It's like, well, why else would anybody go to the Miami-Dade water and sewer unless they're pissed off because of something, unless they're angry about something? Of course, that's going to be how it is. Yeah. And that's the, that, I mean, think about the, the political message that comes from that, that the, we're, we're told again and again, that it's basically like we're powerless except to rate individuals and institutions as an angry consumer. And that at the right. end of the day, like it may feel good while you're doing your rant, but it's profoundly disempowering. Yeah. Um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to a couple of specific names because we've been talking about this big movement, but there are also names. There are individuals who stand to gain uh, from this activity, from this drift to the right or this hard push to the right. Here in Florida, when we think of the name DeVos, usually we think of the NBA's Orlando Magic and their late owner, Rich DeVos, uh, who also founded Amway. Um, in this conversation that we're having, though, the DeVos family is a critical one to talk about, particularly Rich DeVos's daughter-in-law, Betsy DeVos. Can you tell us, apart from her role in the Trump administration as the Secretary of Education for four years, who is Betsy DeVos and what, if any, were your chief concerns when she was tapped for that role back in 2017? And, and were those concerns realized during her tenure? Because I, I think that those of us who know her name mostly encountered it through, um, you know, really sort of not great headlines. DeVos proposes this. DeVos says that. And in typical media, you know, fashion, it didn't get to the nut of what her her leadership or maybe lack of leadership was during those four years. Like what was the net effect of Betsy DeVos and why should we care about that name? So just a little context. One thing that makes Florida really different from say the heartland of the United States is that the heartland, each state has at least one billionaire, sometimes more who their money derives from some sort of like, early mid-century manufacturing process. And yeah. you've often never heard their name. They're enormously wealthy and either they are directly or they come from a family that got really mad during the New Deal. Um, they felt like too much power tilted towards labor and away from, from the, the brilliant business people. And they have spent the, you know, ensuing the entire rest of that century and now 20 years into this century trying to undo that. And they've actually made tremendous progress. And and some of those families are the DeVos family, which which Betsy married into, but also her family, the Prince family. People may know the name Eric Prince. That's her that's her brother. Yeah. Every everything that we're talking about right now in this conversation, you can just sub out the word education and put in military and we can have the same yeah. conversation about Eric Prince, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. Ahead, and then their their passion going back decades is private school choice. And the first time that their their families tried to change the law in Michigan and allow 
public allow taxpayer money to pay for religious schools. You know, Betsy was a teenager. And I thought that was so interesting that, you know, vision of her, you know, like, like phone banking with a rotary phone. I don't know if she, if she actually did. Um, so, so if you were in the heartland, you might have known her name. Um, but, uh, it, it was this very extreme, extreme vision, just an utter disdain for, for public education. But what I discovered as I traveled through Michigan was that really their aim was to weaken the Democratic Party in Michigan. And that that the the like their fixation was, you know, their their animosity towards public schools had a lot to do with their loathing of teachers unions. Mm -hmm. They loathe all unions, but they particularly loathe teachers unions. And so the so you can go decade by decade and look at all the the laws that they've enacted in Michigan because the family controls the Republican Party in Michigan. And you can see them sort of undermining the structure of public education in Michigan so that there are more and more and more charter schools, um, the vast majority of which in that state are run for profit, yeah. um, similar to Florida, as a matter right. of fact. And now they're on the cusp. They're they're trying to, to engineer a, a private school voucher program where very wealthy people could could uh, get tax credits in exchange for donating to a scholarship program, also very similar to what you have in in Florida. Um, so she wasn't particularly effective in getting federal programs enacted or laws changed, but she was very effective as far as using the the bully pulpit. And so when you asked earlier in the program about the pandemic really opening the door to a certain kind of right wing school privatization. She is a huge part of why she uh, founded a very influential school choice lobby group called the American Federation of Children that that plays you know very actively in all these states and is really having a big impact. So I, I feel like right away she got kind of caricatured as a ditz and yeah. and that was a real misreading. Of, of who she is and just how much influence she's had. Yeah, you're right. I think that if you talk to most liberals um, or, you know, anti-MAGA people who are uh, just broadly opposed to the Donald Trump political project, they would probably characterize her through ineptitude. They'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. she was always putting her foot in her mouth. She was kind of a, 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 a you know, like a, a Biden or Harris, a Kamala Harris type mm -hmm. where it was just like, oh my God, what did she say this time type of scenario. Um, another name, down here in Miami, uh, if you live here, you might hear the name Manny Diaz and you think of the former UM coach who got fired of last year, or you might think of our old corrupt mayor who now runs our state Democratic Party. Um, but for this conversation, the most important Manny Diaz is Manny Diaz Jr., the former state senator from Hialeah, who led a charter school takeover that we alluded to earlier in the episode in this interview uh, of Jefferson County. The county's entire system was through a series of sort of dubious backroom deals and influence peddling handed over to a charter company that wouldn't, you know it, Senator Diaz had a personal stake in. Um, today, Senator Diaz is now Florida Commissioner of Education, appointed by Ron DeSantis earlier this year. I recommend that anybody who wants to read up on the whole scandal and the details, check out WLRN's investigative reporting by Jessica Bakeman. She's incredible. Um, my question for you, Jennifer, how often in your reporting, have you come across similar conflicts? Because for me, it always feels like whenever there's like a, a big voice in the room who is pro-charter or pro-private school, they're only a couple of Google searches away from realizing like, oh, well, they're on the board. Oh, well, they have like a significant financial investment. Um, is that a characteristic from, from your perspective and when you do your reporting on, on this issue? 
it's interesting there there was a book that came out a couple of years ago kind of a couple of conservative education reformers looking back over the charter school experiment and one of the things they conceded was that they had underestimated just what a powerful driver the profit motive would turn out to be and so you absolutely see the kinds of chummy relationships that that you're talking about where you know this person is palsy with this person and there's a lot of money sloshing around and then there's florida and florida is always <laughs> in a league of its own and that was you know when i was learning about uh um the political landscape in in florida in in the 2000s like that was really the first time i had come across the idea that you would have a politician like a manny diaz jr who would you know essentially like run a charter school chain and and would be you know would be profiting from it but then would also be the one kind of you know like uh helping enact laws that his company was going to benefit from and i think in a lot of states that would still be a bridge too far yeah but in florida that's just how it works <laughs> is there okay for our listeners who are probably mostly in florida is there something uh resembling like a policy or like doctrine or legislation out there that could be proposed or pushed forward or that has been successful to eliminate these conflicts of interest is there is this codified anywhere where it's like hey guys maybe it i don't know maybe a more uh, <laughs> a more advanced state than ours but somebody who sat down and said like this should this should go without saying but let's just codify this you can't profit off of doing this kind of stuff is there any like regulatory environment out there that would stop something like 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 this well it's interesting you know there was a a big push this year to get the biden administration to overhaul the rules that govern the federal charter school program and this is you now this was a program started in the clinton era and you know it's given out um some unbelievable amount of money to help charter schools new charter schools start up and existing ones expand. And so basically what they tried to do was to crack down on the various ways that 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 people could could profit. Um, because, you know, like people don't like that, that it, it right. makes the uh, mentioning profit in the same sentence with schools makes makes parents in particular and good government types really uncomfortable. And so what was interesting was that the, you know, the Biden administration did actually uh, propose a much tougher language and they got just absolutely furious pushback because what happens is that you have the charter industry as a whole close ranks. And so even though you would think it would be in the interest of people who are, all about the high performing urban charter school that they would want to crack down on the bottom feeders the you know the virtual charter schools that are almost worse than not going to school um these outrageous real estate like a, a lot of times what you'll have and this is a common story in florida you'll have a charter management organization that's really a real estate firm and then what they do is you know sort of like lease property to a school that then has to pay outrageous rent to the management company so all of those things should be illegal yeah. but you would think that the sort of good charter crowd would want to keep their movement from being sort of tarred by this but it doesn't happen they close ranks yeah. all you have to do is look i mean like accelerate all of these things whenever you whenever you privatize money 
imagine what the most um, cynical hedge fund manager out there in the world will do with it. Whatever structure or, you know, uh, just corrupted system that they'll use to get the maximum tax benefit out of it, they will. Like it's like water, whatever direction it runs or whatever wh- whatever opening it has, it will fill that space. It'll find a way to do that. And it, it it's, it's complicated to the point of being impossible to predict. Like you don't know what they're going to do. That's crazy. I had not heard that about the, the, the real, I can, that's, that sounds so Florida. Like I can't, I, I imagine that there's probably one opening across the street from me right now. There, it is absolutely so Florida. You should look into it and then you're going to need to immediately take a shower, probably two showers. Oh my God. My last question for you before I let you go uh, is about the danger of the other side of this blade, right? Because it is two-sided. We made a joke on our last episode about how, um, you know, we see something like Sentner Academy. For those that don't know, Sentner Academy is down here in Miami, Florida. It made headlines last year for its um, policy of if teachers were, if teachers did get vaccinated, they would be removed from the presence of the students because the the leadership of Sentner Academy believes that the vaccine is um, evil and the devil incarnate that is coming to take our souls. Different conversation. I think that our instinct for a lot of folks in a place like Miami, which is, people forget, overwhelmingly liberal, um, overwhelmingly democratic democratic voting, our instinct to push back on these culture wars by, you know, founding our own, I joked in the last episode, I called it AOC Academy or maybe Hillary Clinton Academy or something, which would be just as bad, right? Like, because if 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 what we're trying to do is create a robust public system that uplifts everybody, it, the danger is that the the impetus for this move could just find a market solution for those of us who are angry but not willing to look too deeply into it. We'll just participate in it, but on our terms. You know, have you seen anything like that? I don't know. What are your thoughts there? I, you know, I think that is just such a sharp observation. And I really worry about that. Think about the, you know, like Ron DeSantis is really making an art of using state power to enforce particular, you know, political views, right? You know, think about don't say gay or patriotic education. And so you could absolutely imagine a scenario where parents start to say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with this. Instead, you know, I want my kids to go to AOC Academy, which is exactly what he's hoping, right? That that education just becomes this sort of free-for-all. And I think about, you know, the first parents I ever knew who homeschooled were parents who pulled their kids out of public school during the first Gulf War because they were so put off by all the sort of jingoism. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. And that the challenge for us is to figure out a way to really, you know, convince parents to to push back on the particular policies, but also on behalf of the institution of public education. Last thing I'll say to our listeners is um, it's not super germane to this topic, so we didn't bring it up. Uh, but uh, last week, um, uh, Jennifer and her partner Jack had a great byline in uh, the Nation. It's called "It isn't uh, It isn't populist to defund rural schools." We are coastal elites here in Florida. We're very coastally elite, but uh, and there's really nowhere in Florida where you can be more than like a couple of hours outside of like a major metro area. But it's a great article that also um, uh, kind of cuts to the heart of a lot of the the, the issue that we're talking about today. Um, our guest today was Jennifer Berkshire co-host of the Have You Heard podcast and co-author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. 
can follow her on Twitter at B is for Berkshire. And you can subscribe on patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. Jennifer, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this episode of Why Are We Like This? Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at wawlt.com. Follow us on Twitter at Walt Show and on TikTok at Walt Show. You can also email us at walt at allpointswest.net. Until next time, this was Why Are We Like This? Walt, Walt, Walt. Walt Mafia Rising. (laughs) Ha, 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 